Well, welcome to a special uh, edition of our Say Something Interesting podcast. Uh, This is Brent coming at you on Zoom uh, interview. We are interviewing today Dr. Blaine Charette of Northwest University. Some of you are familiar with him, although he looks a little different today. I'll I'll be honest with you. Uh, A little bit more 70s version of Dr. Charette (laughs) is in play right now. Uh, but Dr. Charette came and did a, uh, a talk with us, a, a Friday night East Lake U class. Uh, when was that? How long ago was that, Blaine? Six, six months ago, a year ago, maybe? Not even that probably long, right? I think that was in June. June, yeah. okay. So probably right out of year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then spoke on a Sunday morning. He's been uh, one of my favorite professors that I've ever had uh, growing up and, and uh, continues to be a voice of wisdom and theological, uh, I don't know, insights and, and challenge and all that good stuff, uh, and a friend as well. So thanks for making it happen today on a, on a Friday. Yeah, well, thanks for the invite. Yeah. It's good to be here. Now I see this does not look like your, uh, your school office. Is this a home office? Where you, where yeah, you this, is, uh, this is my home office. So this has sort of become my Zoom, Zoom center when I was teaching classes up till about a month ago. Yeah, how's that looked for you? I mean, uh, you're you're a full time class. I mean, you know, professor doing not just writing and and all that scholarly work, but actually have classes, and then all this COVID pandemic stuff hit. And how did that affect Northwest and you personally? And yeah, well, so what that meant is it all kind of happened during spring break. So when we, you know, the Friday before spring break, it looked like everybody would be coming back after spring break, but it was during that week of spring break that the state basically shut down. So then we had to quickly scramble and put everything, you know, over the internet, basically. Yeah. So that was, uh, I enjoyed it, but it was, uh, I found it very time consuming because since you don't have that face-to-face classroom experience, and as you know, I kind of use a whiteboard and stuff like that quite a bit, right? So what I, what I did is I would just put together kind of outline study guide questions for each lecture. So it was kind of good to do that, but it was very busy. So from midterm till the end of the semester, I was probably a lot busier than normally I would have been. Yeah. Well, and you've always done a good job of uh, classroom feedback and having people submit ideas. Um, Some of them good, probably most of them not as good. And we would all (laughs) laugh at you, how gracious you were in people being like, well, I think this, and you'd be like, nah, okay, well, yeah. and then <laughs> let me steer the conversation towards this. How's that been? How's that been in terms of, uh, you know, Zoom class, everybody's probably either on mute. It, it feels like in the Zoom calls that I've been on, either everybody's on mute and there's an awkwardness that nobody wants to Yeah, talk. you or know, I, I, it make, the dynamic is very different, whether it's a smaller class, like say a class of under 10, as opposed to say a class of um, say 40. Yeah. I find with a larger class, a lot of the students, yeah, they just, they don't turn on their video. You don't even know if they're there. You know, for all you know, they signed in and then just left. Yeah. So you don't yeah. know if they're there. Uh, I would have them use the chat thing just to at least indicate that they're present, right? Right. So, and, uh, but, but I just found with larger classes, you don't know whether you're having any real contact with individual students or not. But with smaller classes, I would require them to make sure they're there with their video on and participating. And then it wasn't that uh, all that different from what just the regular classroom setup would have been like. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, so obviously over here, we've got a lot of parents in our congregation of, you know, trying to figure out what does the fall look like for our kids. I know you probably don't have any insight into state regulations for for all all of that. And if you do, that'd be great. But um, we're, uh, you know, you're on the other side of thing as a teacher. Um, How have you seen like the students? I know they're college students. That's different than like a, you know, grade schooler, but respond to this sort of thing. Is it like been the the same level of quality of work that you've seen as a return or is it different? Have you been more lenient on some of that? I mean, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, students definitely like the, um, the classroom experience and they like being on campus. So a lot of the feedback we get from students is they just, and I think all of us felt this, they just didn't like being at home confined, you know, that kind of thing. And they would, you know, rather. And so uh, I think it, we are having to prepare in the fall for maybe sort of a hybrid kind of setting where we will still do live classes, but because the state maybe won't allow, say a class of 40 with 40 seats in that classroom, that might not be doable. So what we might have to do is simultaneously have some students present in the classroom, but because that size wouldn't accommodate everybody, then the rest of the students will have to kind of sim- watch it through a simulcast form, right? So we're sort of experimenting with just different ways of trying to comply with state regulation, but as much as possible, try to return back to a live classroom setting. Uh, well, how does that affect dorm life and apartment life on campus? Any ideas? Yeah, I think, I know they're kind of working through uh, what's, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure exactly, that's a good question. I'm not sure, I know they're working through that, what, what, what accommodations they will need to make as far as say, two students sharing a, a dorm room or something, right? Right. Like, yeah. uh, so I don't know whether that will involve certain kind of testing or, or whatever. But uh, but yeah, all those things. Never ever done anything like this before. Yeah, this is all new to all of us. Yeah. Right. So, right. Yeah. yeah. We, we shared plenty of uh, gross things in, in the dorm rooms when I was there. So COVID just <laughs> on top of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I yeah. It's it's been an odd time. That's for sure. I just my hope is that by August. Uh, by August, things will be fairly normal, but who's yeah. to say? Yeah. yeah. My apologies if uh, that came through and you could hear a ringing. I, I <laughs> turn off my phone and it synced to my computer. It won't happen again. I just put on your yeah, That's fine. Yeah. Um, so the reason I, I wanted to bring you in on something like this, is we just finished a series uh, looking at Matthew chapter five through chapter seven, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, yeah. How do we reread things in light of kind of, you know, we go through different phases of life. You read uh, lots of things differently based on, I read that when I was single and now I'm married. I read that uh, when I was married. Now I read it when I was divorced and it means something different to me. I read it when I was yeah. a student. I read it when I'm 40 years old. Yeah. I'm, I'm rereading um, C.S. Lewis's uh, space trilogy right now. Okay. And uh, you know, I read it differently as a 37 year old adult as, the, as I did when I was you know 16 reading it, not really realizing, I think like some of the yeah. political undertones that he was trying to write through and the, yeah. you know, the yeah. things going on at the time. I read it I read it similar to the way that I would read Tolkien's, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy. And it, it really doesn't read like that. It reads com- completely differently, but that was lost on me at that age. So no, anyways, yeah. we do that all the time. And I wondered, you know, rereading Matthew five through seven, would we read it differently now? Um, that kind of the world, our world has been a bit upside down in terms of what expectations are. We've, 
we've read through it in the past. We know that the, the, the bar that Jesus has for a lot of us is, has felt so high. It's felt like felt impossible. How do you pray for those who persecute you? How do you, um, you know, you hear the claim on the, on the the guy who comes and says, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, give everything you have. And that's felt like, well, you know, (laughs) we're going to have summertime, right? That feels like living foolishly. Um, and yet now it kind of, with everything is the mix, I wondered if we would read it differently. Um, and so we, we kind of, we're, we're finished with the series, so it's all over. So no matter what we talk about here, <laughs> that's already out there. Who knows who's watching this and follow along this with this, but I, I want to bring you in to be like, is there anything that I'm missing? I feel like I didn't maybe communicate something specifically, or was this all just Brent kind of out there and that's not really how it played out <laughs> to be. But the premise behind it was, uh, was ultimately, um, this idea that Jesus and, you know, in the Matthew's five teaching blocks, this first one is kind of a wisdom text, a, yeah. you know, this is the best way to do life. If you believe I am who I say I am. And these show up in other parts of scripture in the Psalms chapter, you know, chapter one of Psalms is very much a wisdom text. Um, it shows up in extra biblical literature as well too. Yeah. You want to speak to that in terms of, you mentioned wisdom Torah kind of reading. Yeah. Everything. I mean, cause it, it, it's interesting. If you look at the at old Testament faith, uh, the Torah, you know, the, the books of Moses, the law, I'll use the word Torah, but basically what we would mean by kind of a law and the commandments, um, you have that there in the first five books of the old Testament. And it basically gives birth, you could say to the wisdom tradition within Israel and also the prophetic tradition within Israel. So if you think of those, those main units that comprise the Old Testament, you've got the law, and then you've got wisdom texts, and then you've got prophetic texts. But there's that sense in which it's almost like a triangle. The the Torah is what essentially gives the basis or birth to those other two traditions within Israel. And you see that very much in, in Matthew, and even think of the Sermon on the Mount. He has a lot to say about the law, obviously. Yeah, so one of the first things he says is, you know, don't suppose I've come to abolish the law. I've actually come to fulfill it. And then he talks about you know, the need to observe the commandments. And then he, he, interpret, he begins to interpret the, the commandments of Moses and that kind of thing. But then it's not surprising that as you get you know, closer to the end of the sermon, you know, who's the wise man? The wise man's the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. You know, that's the man who builds his house upon the, the rock, as it were, as opposed to the sand. So you've got that, the, the, even there, it's like this, the teaching of Jesus now becomes this sort of new Torah. You know, it's this, this new teaching for this new covenant age, but the same rules apply. We also see, you know, think of all the references to um prophets also in Matthew 7, right? Well, starting in Matthew 5, there's these reference to the prophets. Jesus invites his disciples to see themselves within that prophetic tradition. Um, Every one of those five teaching blocks in Matthew ends with a judgment scene. So Jesus himself functions prophetically. He's, He's calling people to, he's calling them to this greater righteousness, but he also spells out the you know, the implications of the wise person who takes this on board, but then also the consequences of, say, those people who, on one level, do the things of Jesus, but at the same time, aren't really doing the will of the Father. So those sort of false charismatics you have in chapter 7, where they they prophesy in Jesus' name, they cast out demons in his name, they do mighty miracles in his name, but then Jesus says, what? I never knew you. Mm-hmm. Apart from me, right? So Jesus Himself. So you have got kind of like that 
there's almost a harsh prophetic aspect to the Sermon on the Mount. There's definitely this wisdom teaching. Again, even within the Beatitudes and things like that, you have this sort of a certain kind of that, that itself kind of fits within a wisdom format. So I find it interesting that in some ways, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of this, uh, it, it replicates all the major forms that you would find in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In uh, coming back to that, that um, uh, chapter seven, the prophets, and you'll know them, you know, he basically says you'll know them by their fruit. That was the yeah. at the end of the message was um, the, the idea behind it was resonance and fruit. There's going to be things that resonate with you. Does this resonate with you? Does what I'm saying, does this way of yeah. life, does this yeah. sound, you know, this good or whatever. And then yeah. also this idea of it's not just resonance alone. It's also the fruit of it. And the problem with the fruit is that it takes time, right? Yeah. The house looks fine because it's still standing, but let's see what <laughs> happens over time. If yeah. it, it falls right. away because of sand or, or if it's this and so in life you we kind of go through life going you know i think our, our culture has been very much a, well this feels true to me well this feels true to me yes yeah. but do you are you willing to look at the fruit of it over a period of time and be like hey this isn't producing the fruit that i wanted or that i think is good perhaps yeah. no matter how good it felt in the moment that wasn't worth building my house on or my life on. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's the person who invests their entire life into their vocation and their entire identity is wrapped up in who they think that they are with their job. And then yeah. something happens, a poor decision, uh, you know, uh, um, the market crashes, they lose this job and they, they lose their sense of identity and wholeness. Yeah. And all yeah. of a sudden you're like, it was now is the time to res you know, look at the fruit and be like, had that work out for you? Like it didn't matter how good it felt in those moments or how many years it was there. The fruit is a, is a, is a big deal. But the, the problem with the fruit is it takes time, right? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. the issue. And so it's it's a matter of trusting Jesus when he says this is the fruit that's worth. And Paul when he talks about the fruit of the spirit, this is the fruit that is worth going for. And you know, I'm yeah, because part you, part of the part of the wisdom tradition is learning the wisdom of those who have come before, so you don't have to make your own. You don't have to. I mean, we all learn from our own mistakes, but wisdom is learning from that collective wisdom of of godly, righteous people over generations, so that you don't have to learn from your own mistakes. You can actually avoid some of these things in life simply by taking on board wisdom, right? And uh, so wisdom is kind of a shortcut to blessing in that sense, in that, uh, again, it, it can, it can uh, wisdom can uh, guard us from certain things that are going to make our life less than complete or whole, right? And, um, but again, it ultimately goes back to god's word like are we willing to hear and listen right yeah so think in the sermon you know you have heard but i say to you right this kind of because even i mean how i and read that particular section of chapter five is we can hear god's word but sometimes we're not hearing it accurately we're not hearing it correctly right Right, and therefore we can sometimes share in a common folly that even the people of God aren't immune to. So sometimes, sometimes the pe I mean, we've got numerous examples of this in the Bible where sometimes the people of God will end up moving in wrong directions. Why? Because they're not really hearing properly. 
And yeah, you know, I just I've just finished working on this uh, a paper on the Shema. You know, so the Shema goes back to uh, Deuteronomy six, four, and five. Is that famous statement? You know, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, our Lord is one, and you will love the Lord your God, or you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And looking at how Jesus incorporates that in his teaching in the first three Gospels, but that uh, idea of hearing right? Just the importance of, because I would say that's the first step in wisdom is, have I heard correctly, right? Yeah. Because we have all this interference that's going on in our lives that uh, sometimes prevents us from really hearing the word of God. So, so Torah is the word of God, but wisdom, you could say, is when we have heard it correctly. So Jesus is very much this teacher of wisdom who's basically saying, you know, wait a minute, have we really heard that commandment properly? Here's a new way to approach that commandment. And then he's hoping people will have, again, those wisdom moments like, okay, well, that that makes sense. That really, now I kind of need to rethink a lot of things in the light of that observation, right? Yeah. And so much of what Jesus is doing in his teaching, it's interesting, the content doesn't change because he's basically just going back to the words of Moses, what God revealed through Moses. But he becomes this uh, kind of this ultimate interpreter of what God is communicating way back then. And uh, it's not that God's changed his word, it's just we needed, uh, we weren't listening correctly. Israel hadn't really listened too well. But then part of it too is just, you know, as Jesus would recognize, and this is certainly part of the new covenant, is we now have the spirit within us that also enables us to hear better. So again, if you think back to Deuteronomy, uh, in Deuteronomy 29, Moses is pretty pessimistic. He's given the people these commandments, but he says, uh, I'm just paraphrasing, but he says, basically, you're not really going to be able to keep these commandments. Why? Because God has not yet given you a heart to understand. He hasn't given you eyes to see or ears to hear, right? Yeah. So, and that's why you know you look at those later chapters in Deuteronomy. Moses is pretty pessimistic, and he kind of more or less predicts what's going to happen to Israel. They're going to go into the land, but they're going to become forgetful. They're going to become disobedient, and everything's going to fall apart. But then they are going to seek God with all their heart and soul, and God's going to what circumcise their hearts, right? And then He will give them that heart. Fast forward to Jesus, uh, Jesus is more or less announcing what the inbreaking of the kingdom, and with the coming of the king, what's the big sign of the kingdom? The spirit that is now going to be poured out, okay? And that's what makes this true hearing and true acting on, you know, we can be the wise man who not only hears correctly, but begins to put that into practice. But... It's, it's really the work of the Spirit in our lives, um, which is why, you know, if you fast forward to the very end of Matthew's Gospel, you know, the famous Great Commission text, what, 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 how do we make disciples? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you've got this kind of baptism in the Spirit. You know, Jesus, think of at his, you know, what John says, this coming one, he's referring to Jesus, he's going to baptize others 
in the Holy Spirit. That's part of what's being described there at the end of Matthew. And then uh, what baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all the I command. I mean, this kind of language comes right out of Deuteronomy. But the, the difference is we can now, as Christians, we can obey what Jesus had commanded. Why? Because we've experienced this baptism. It's the spirit within us that uh, enables us to not only hear correctly, but to now act upon what we have heard. Right? That's great, man. Yeah, it's really good. We, uh, we, you and I hadn't talked about this, but our our next series that we're starting this weekend is a series called Pirate Radio, talking about the <laughs> the, the, the '60s. You know, when Radio boats, Caroline. Yes, yeah, Radio Caroline. Exactly. Um, that's what we're talking about. You know, posting offshore, blasting FM airways over, and they would have to kind of dodge and move around to kind of avoid the controlling, you know, airwaves or whatever. And if you tuned it just in right, you could hear it. And, and that's a good metaphor for the work of the church, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what we're talking. The gospel operates yeah. in a very, very similar way. There's going to be a lot yeah. of noise and we're trying to disrupt the status quo and, and they're not going to be, you know, people in power don't like subversive voices. Um, yeah. Everything yeah. they do to quiet it out. And so um, that's, that's really where we're headed with this. So this idea of, am I hearing it really? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's, yeah. that's perfect for this. So Thank you for that. Hey, one area that I really felt compelled in in my reading, and I don't know that I communicated it as clearly as I wanted to in the series, and I don't know if it's just a lack of understanding or or uh, push through on my part, um, but was this idea of, of um, wholeness and doubleness in the sermon. Um, Jesus really trying to talk to um, his the people saying, there's a way in which you do things for external, but if it's not matching up with what's internal, then we've got yeah. issues. Later, he on he would you know the woe to the Pharisees is you wash the outside of the cup, but the inside's terrible. Yeah. When you give, the optics of generosity is one of the pieces of you give yeah. and you make sounds and trumpets and right. all of these things, um, and, and yet you know the, the heart's not in it. You're giving for odd reasons, and and I'd rather have you do things you know whole. At, at, you yeah. Know, if you're going to do them, do them whole or don't do them at all. I'd actually prefer that probably than just hide itself. Yeah. You're right. And, and so it's not surprising that in Matthew, one of, one of Jesus's main metaphors in Matthew's gospel is that metaphor of the hypocrite, right? And if you think in the Greek world, you know, that Greek word hypocrites, uh, it basically meant an actor. It goes back to Greek drama. And so what is an actor? An actor is someone, you know, what you see isn't necessarily what you get because there, there's this, if, if you think of Greek drama, they would wear a mask, right? So the hypocrite is somebody who wears a mask. So you've got the, so Jesus is oftentimes accusing the Pharisees in Matthew of being hypocritical because they look righteous. Yeah, they're these whitewashed tombs, basically. They look clean and pure on the outside, but as he says, inside they're full of corruption and dead man's bones and that kind of thing, right? And so when Jesus, yeah, in, in 548, when he says, be ye perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. It, it, it's, it's sort of unfortunate that in, in English translation, we've used this word perfect because I think most people read that and we think in terms of moral perfection, we think, well, he's got to be kidding, right? What was he mean? Yeah. How yeah. can I be perfect? Like with that, right? Yeah. yeah. How can I be perfect? Like God is perfect. And so I think a lot of people don't even, they just check out at that point. It's like, okay, Jesus sitting this unrealistic uh, bar that's way too high. Um, 
the, the word there is more just complete. It'd be better to translate that be complete or even a better way might be to be a person of integrity. So when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's basically saying God has integrity. With God, what you see is what you get, right? Uh, God doesn't lie. God doesn't, you know, he doesn't descend, you know, God's not a hypocrite, in other words, right? God keeps his word. God's faithful. God's this model of integrity. That's what we need to adopt in our own lives, right? And then he segues from that to look at those, those pillars of Jewish piety, uh, um, uh, almsgiving, praying, tithe, uh, fasting, uh, so he gives those three examples in chapter six, and he contrasts what kind of a hypocritical way of doing it, as you noted, making a big show over how generous you are. Uh, but what's the proper way of doing it? You're not letting one hand know what the other hand is doing, right? But the father sees in secret. You know, God knows the heart, right? Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so that for when, when Jesus talks about that greater righteousness, going back to you know, earlier in chapter five, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. What he means by that greater righteousness is basically that integrity. Make sure that your inside matches your outside, right? And here again, you know, the, the, what's always kind of just below the surface. In, in fact, you know, I, most of my academic work has been in Matthew. And the thing I find frustrating about Matthew is it's, it's obvious that Matthew sees the spirit as the key. I wish he would, <laughs> I wish he would be more upfront about that. Uh, because what's definitely always just bubbling up from the surface is you can only do this greater righteousness because of the work of the Spirit in your life, right? It, so for Matthew, it's not about you just need to try harder because, you know, it, it's not this kind of performance discipleship where I yeah. just need to try harder. I need to work more at this. I need to, you know, obviously to be a righteous person takes effort and work. But ultimately, what's going to make the difference is that transformative activity of the spirit in our lives, right? And you could say it's the spirit that glues the interior to the exterior, right? So it's the spirit that makes us one in that sense, that creates this sort of perfect or complete disciple where there is no dissembling, there is no mismatch between what what they look to be and who they actually are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the beauty of that is as debilitating as be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Yeah. Right. Um, When you say be integrous as your father is integrous. Like, yeah, that's, that's more of an invitation because we want that. Like we've kind of given up on perfection, but we do want to be people who people can trust that they, what they see is what they get. And uh, I am what you see of me on the internet or social media. I am what, you, what I am when you see me in person. I'm yeah. not a different person at home than I am at work or everywhere else. Where I, we've seen that so often, we see this. Yeah. See it right now, I mean, one of the pieces that came up in this series was we see all these commercials about how these multi-million dollar companies are so generous with their, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like we're doing this, we're doing this. And we're like, yeah, no, we get it. Like, we, you know, you're trying to like, sell us on something that yeah, you know, right. has, has been there or hasn't been there. Like who knows? There's no way we can verify it or is a million dollars sounds like a lot to us, but if you're making hundreds of millions of dollars, is it really all that much, right. all that much yeah. of a sacrifice for you? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Have um, you given more than the federal government fined you last year? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that all that generous? And, and how do you deal with that? Um, but, but I like what you said, like too, um, that kind of integrity can only come a, a true, that, that greater righteousness is only, can only be appealed to, uh, if that spirit, if that spirit baptism has taken place, if we feel like we're yeah. doing this out of a response that God, what God is doing in me, I can't do it because I'm trying harder. Yeah. Um, it is, uh, it is kind of a divine activity that's operating within us that when we, when we begin to take those steps, that's that we're, we are being redeemed. We are being, you know, whatever in, in that. And why do you think, why do you think you said, you said, I, I wish Matthew would have said more about that. Do you think it was just operating assumptions that were already in play? Like his audience would have already known. That's a, Well, he, he, part of it is just narrative books by nature tend to be more subtle in the way they communicate their theology than say a letter of Paul. So Paul, when he's writing a letter, he's just, yeah. just out there with the right. teaching. When you're writing a narrative like a gospel, almost by definition, it becomes much more subtle the way the theology comes through. So for example, uh, what would inform me that the spirit is what's crucial here is that, look how Matthew begins the public ministry of Jesus. He's, he himself goes to the Jordan. He's baptized by John. He sees this as necessary to fulfill righteousness, right? So you got that introduction already of that. So Jesus sees that his act of submitting to John's baptism is itself a necessary step of obedience he has to take to fulfill righteousness. What happens to him as he's baptized when he comes out, up out of the water, what the spirit descends on him, right? And then what's the very next thing we read about? The spirit leads him up into the wilderness in order to be tempted. So the spirit comes upon him, and the very first thing the spirit does is takes him into the wilderness in order to be tempted, right? Yeah. But then what? how we would then read that text is, is, is as Jesus is being tested and tempted there, how does he respond each time to the temptation of the devil? By quoting Deuteronomy right? It goes back to the law of Moses. Every, so, and what he's showing is, I have heard this correctly, and I am living this out. You know, so you're not going to, he's basically saying to the devil, you are not going to uh, dissuade me from loving God with all my heart, right? I am going to, uh, I'm not going to test God, God's word, you know, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word. I'm going to be attentive to the word of God. I'm not going to test God, and I'm only going to worship and serve God, right? So he makes that very clear. And what's interesting is all this happens before he actually starts his public ministry, right? Mm -hmm. But here we see Jesus, and I, I think the reason why Matthew puts the temptation up front there is he wants us to see that Jesus receives, the, I mean, Jesus is conceived of the Spirit, but Jesus nonetheless, at his baptism, has this unique experience of the Spirit. That Spirit, that Spirit doesn't protect him from temptation, but that Spirit strengthens him in the midst of temptation. So even before Jesus begins his public ministry, he's already made it clear that he's totally committed to God's righteousness. He's totally dependent on the Spirit of God. So I see Jesus as the, uh, the first person in the Gospels who models what spirit baptism means, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Because I think sometimes how we sometimes read these texts is that Jesus, Jesus is successful in temptation because he's the son of God. So we kind of, we kind of, we put Jesus on the, and obviously Jesus is unique, right? He is the son of God, but we have, we can never minimize the fact that Jesus is also fully human. So therefore his, his, his time of, of temptation in the wilderness, he's experiencing that as a human being. So we shouldn't think that just because he's the son of God, it was sort of like this easy thing for him, right? It's this difficult thing for him. Uh, and he's doing it. And I think what Matthew's making it clear is he's doing this through the power of the spirit, that same spirit that he eventually is going to pour out upon all his disciples. And therefore, the temptation narrative, how I would read that, is that how do I withstand temptation? On the one hand, through the strength of the spirit within me, and then through reference to the word of God that is communicated in the Bible. Because that's what Jesus relies on. He's got the resources of the spirit and he quotes Deuteronomy. Right? Yeah. And that, and, and basically the tempter is, uh, he's powerless. I mean, how can, how can the devil combat the word of God and the power of the spirit of God? Right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so then, um, so, so I see that Matthew kind of already before even, before we even get to say the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's already established some of those ideas of the power of the Spirit in terms of Jesus's own righteousness. So then when Jesus begins to speak in terms of, to his disciples, you need to also, uh, your righteousness needs to be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It, what's assumed is it's the Spirit and the Word that's going to make that possible. Yeah. Their lives, right? So, I mean, a way forward for us then too. reading this is as, you know, modern day kind of disciples trying to figure out the way of Jesus and how do we live in this? How do we do things the way that Jesus would have done them? Um, we have a prime example here of we have this, you know, hearing the truth from scripture that, that yeah. is if we go, this is truth, like no matter what, yeah. Yeah. no matter what I think with the the current circumstances and things and, you know, who knows news and we have so many voices right now we're, we're definitely not sure who to trust even yeah. if we trust we're like i kind of trust but if something comes out i'm i'm willing to jump ship or whatever you know what yeah. i mean yeah um so then it's like well do we do that with scripture because that's the temptation then too or do we do that with how do we know anything about religion in general and christianity has been do we believe christ when he says this is this is truth and now go and live this out and and you know live with live in the spirit have the spirit live you know yeah in the spirit as you dwell on these truths and interpret this for life right so yeah uh a good good moving forward with that so Man, that's really good. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I've taken up plenty of your time already. Any closing thoughts on Matthew slash Sermon on the Mount slash, you know, re reconsideration pieces for, for all of that in light of today's circumstances that maybe I, I may have missed? Well, you know, uh, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I saw something just the other day where it's like in the last three months, we've, uh, we've gone through the, the flu epidemic of 1918, the depression of the 1930s, and the civil rights movement of the 1960s. It's like all of that Unbelievable. is happening. Yeah. Right so we're living in this time that um, is very difficult for a lot of people, right? And, and we can see where there's just a lot of hurt and pain and frustration out there. And 
you know, just the other day when I was, again, reviewing the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the, the beatitude about, you know, blessed are those who mourn, right? And how, how that kind of struck me is, even though I'm not, I mean, I haven't lost my job, you know, so I've been through this whole period, I've still been getting paychecks. I haven't lost my job. I haven't become sick, you know, from the, 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 the uh, COVID-19. Uh, I haven't, um, you know, I can enjoy my white privilege, right, as far as the, the civil rights. You know, in other words, I directly haven't been affected or negatively impacted by all these horrible things that are happening right now. But as a disciple, when I would read that beatitude, what it reminds me of is I need to be a person who mourns for this. I need to mourn the racism, you know, that we yeah. see around us. I need to mourn uh, the many people who haven't had a paycheck now for their in their third month, right? And they maybe see their unemployment, maybe they never got their unemployment, or they're seeing, they're worried about what will happen when my unemployment checks run out or they haven't been able to make their mortgage or their rent payment for the, you know, for the last few months. Uh, I sort of feel that part of what it means to be a follower of Christ is I see mourning here is that kind of empathy, being able to imaginatively enter into and, and feel that grieving of the pain of others in the midst of that. Right. So I, I would say that's just something that recently, um, just going back to the sermon, just in recent days and kind of reading through the Beatitudes, that was one thing that sort of jumped out at me is, is uh, what does it mean to mourn, right? Yeah. So I, and to mourn for others, right? Right. Yeah. I, that's, that's brilliant. I love it. And the piece that I loved about the Beatitudes is that, I mean, a lot of times, even in uh, Aristotle's uh, Nicomachean ethics, he would have a yeah. of the Beatitudes, right? But they would all, yeah. they would always be what you'd expected, you know, blessed or happy is the person <laughs> whose family is healthy. Yeah. Happy is the person whose bank account is full. And Jesus does this total countercultural switch on everything yeah. in that. And it, what, what is the, what kind of happiness can we derive from empathy with those who have lost, right? And yeah, it's like it's like a deeper form of happiness. It's it's not happiness. Oh, I I happiness that I got to avoid those things. Happiness that I still have a job. Happiness that I do this. Like you said, it's happiness found in the empathy and the mourning with others involved in that. Yeah, that's right. You provides that humility yeah. that actually makes us all realize this is everyone here is imago dei. We're all created in this image of God. When they suffer, that should cause some sort of pain and suffering on us. Yeah. Too, you know. But it but it shows how upside down the kingdom is, right? Yeah, like it right. just mentioned, because uh, there's something. Yeah, there's something counterintuitive about these beatitudes. And then even it's interesting, you know, if you think of if you were going to live in the way that the Beatitudes would recommend that you're going to be meek and humble as Jesus in Matthew is, you are going to be a peacemaker, you're going to mourn for others, that kind of thing. You get to the final Beatitudes and what's going to happen? You're going to be persecuted. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and think of Jesus. You know, Jesus is teaching all this you would look at the the Gospel of Matthew and you'd think, how does this guy end up on a cross? Yeah. You know, this guy who's going about doing good, this guy who's teaching wisdom, this guy who's basically encouraging people to just live according to God's will, 
and yet he ends up on a cross. And of course, that, that's why the beginning of the gospel message starts with repentance. Because when we are left to our own devices, we are not thinking as God would want us to think. We, so the first step in salvation, you could say, is repenting, this complete change of the direction that our life is going in. And then this, and only then would things like the Beatitudes begin to make sense because they are so counterintuitive. Yeah. That's great, man. Hey, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for yeah. speaking, uh, your wisdom into this stuff. We, uh, we wish you well, pray for you guys, uh, over there. Yeah. And hopefully the fall looks, uh, you know, semi-normal or, or at least doable for you and not, a, not an increase in, in workload too much that <laughs> off, off the rails. I'm excited. One of the things that I'm, I'm excited for, and maybe you can speak to this too, you mentioned, you know, having uh, extra time or, or the ability to kind of produce a paper that you've been working on. I don't know if you yeah. want to speak to that at all. You're, you're welcome to, and we'd love to read it. Um, but, all, but just in general, from the academic world, um, uh, all the time that these people have had to kind of sit down and I've got nothing else to do. So why not? <laughs> we should have some good books in the pipeline is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yeah, that. that's right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, summer's become kind of a, a, a do or die time for me because usually I find the semesters you just there's just so many things going on a semester you don't get a whole lot of time to do your kind of personal uh research right so summers become so in in I just finished this one paper in May and then I'm now moving on to this other project in John's gospel and I it's all good I kind of enjoy it and and you know I, I like you said because because you're sort of quarantined anyways, you might as well just do that. Yeah, it's right. not like you can be doing anything else anyways. So. Right. So yeah. this summer will probably be even more productive for me than a typical summer would have been. Yeah. Good. Well, please pass along any of those works that you feel like would be fruitful. I know some of it you write for the SBL or Society of Biblical Literature, and it might, might be more academic than what you know our, our target yeah. audience would typically read. But if there is anything that you feel like would be fruitful uh, for us, would you, would you pass along and we, we'd sure. love to participate in the, uh, the process of reading, responding, and doing all of that. So yeah. Okay. Anyways, great. Great, man. Uh, yeah, well, thanks for what were you going to say? No, I was just saying thanks for being a part of yeah. this. It's kind of a fun new experiment. We're trying to be more uh, aggressive at working with, uh, you know, uh, people in continuing education, higher education. And, and you know, yeah. you're, you're my go-to in that. So you're the guinea pig for all this stuff. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the invite. And it's always good to talk with you. And at times I've spoken at your church, I've always enjoyed it. So, yeah. We need to get you on the calendar again. We'll get you back soon. Yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate coming out there. It's It's always fun. Yeah, it's always a wild ride when, when Blaine's in town. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. All right, thanks, sir. Yeah. Okay, God bless. Take yeah, care. We'll Bye.